Hello listeners, good morning, good afternoon and good evening wherever you are and welcome to Cloud Ninefin, your weekly dose of leveraged finance fun. If you're wondering why this intro sounds a bit different this week, that's because we've departed slightly from our usual schedule. I'm Kat Hidalgo and I'll be your host this week, replacing Will Cager-Smith, who is actually with us here in London. So I'm going to be quizzing him and our European editor, Chris Haffenden, about the state of funding markets on each side of the Atlantic. So with me today, I have the US editor, Will Cager-Smith. Thanks for being with us today. Thanks, Kat. Yeah, it's great to be here with everyone in person. And Chris Haffenden, our Europe editor. Uh, thanks for inviting me, Kat. We're glad to be here. Perhaps we could start off with a comparison of the state of primary on each side of the Atlantic. So European issuance really pretty much shut down when Russia invaded Ukraine and has only really just begun to recover in the last couple of weeks. Whereas in the US, supply came back a lot quicker for sure. Yeah, I think that's right, Kat. I think one of the things that we did see actually that supply did actually stop before Russia invaded Ukraine as the tensions were building up. So the first the last high yield deal we saw was in the first week in February, and the last loan deal, which is just pure European lev loans, was on Valentine's Day, the 14th of February. So what we've seen since is the odd add-on, the a small euro-denominated tranche on a part of a much bigger sort of US deal. But we've only seen two deals appear this week, which are Cooper Group, which is a Spanish uh, buildings materials business, and Clinogen, which is... Uh, a new LBO. But next week, we're expecting quite a lot of issuance. We're going to see um, new deals probably for Morrison's. And we're, we're aware of at least one bond deal, potentially two bond deals. But we think a lot of the issuance that will come back initially will probably be either in the FRN space or in the double B space. Yeah. And in terms of the, the US market, I mean, it sounds a bit ridiculous to say it, but the start of the war was really just kind of a, a hiccup, at least in the sense that supply didn't dry up entirely. We've definitely seen issuers pay up, especially in bonds, and especially for lower-rated debt. So XPX Flow, for example, it had to place its unsecured LBO bonds with a sort of a, a mid-9% new issue yield in the middle of March. And then Novalex, which came a bit later than that, priced its unsecured bonds just inside 10%. But we've definitely seen in the last couple of weeks a bit of a resurgence in some more opportunistic deals. So Penn National Gaming is doing a refi, Mavis Tyre is doing an add-on, SiriusXM is doing an incremental loan, and all of those just got announced in the past couple of days. So the positive thing about the deals like SPX Flow and Novalex is that even though they had to pay up, and I suppose I should point out that they paid up much less in loans than they did in bonds. The positive thing is that even though they paid up, there was a clearing level for this stuff. So the buy side is pushing back on pricing rather than rejecting deals entirely. So overall, there seems to be a, an increasingly solid foundation for new issuance in the market. And the loan side of things especially seems to be pretty strong. That delivery hero deal last week, for example, that was a loan, but had a very bond-like call structure, I suppose you could call it. And this is a company that hasn't achieved positive EBITDA in more than a decade. And those kind of deals often hit the bond market rather than loans. So it's interesting that it came to loans instead, but there was definitely appetite for it. It got accelerated and pricing was tightened quite significantly. So risk appetite is definitely 
back, I would say. What about the demand dynamic between bonds and loans? Uh, the expectation of high interest rates was a huge tailwind for loans earlier this year, but loans eventually succumbed to broader market volatility and the impact of the war in Ukraine, as many of our listeners will know. Has the loan market fully bounced back? I think it's bad. I think it didn't actually sell off as much as the bond market. So the part of that was because of the fixed floating dynamic. But we did see quite a few investors at the sort of worst point, which was probably the first second week in March, who did have the ability to take sort of fixed high yield. Were actually starting to think about lightening up on some of their level loan names and actually switching in. Um, so you saw the high yield market probably widened by about 150, 200 basis points, and they probably retraced probably 50 to 60% of that move. But the, the level loan market still does look expensive compared to you know where you probably can issue on the high yield side. Though I think one of the things that we are hearing about and I think we're still seeing from investors is probably the, the need to look at floating rather than fixed. So FRNs might be the, uh, the way forward. So a good example is sort of thinking about where does the also where does the arbitrage work with the, the new CLO issuance that we've seen, even though the, the sort of AAA and AA sort of components haven't really widened that much, you have actually seen quite a big widening of the junior sort of tranches and mes and equity cost, which is actually so the all in cost now means that for a single B B two credit you're probably thinking about four twenty five basis points is probably the sort of tightest you could probably go for make the arbitrage work and then maybe for a b3 you're thinking maybe about 50 to 75 basis points back from that and i suppose the other thing i would mention as well is that there's been a significant widening in ig spreads which i think means that whereas before you know people will be happy to sort of take a you know a, a double b credit at sort of 250 i think that there's actually now the view is that that's not not that market's not there anymore and also that's going to affect some of the more pricing of some of the more the double B names that you see coming through the high yield, whereas normally you would see the double B reopen the market, um, the sort of price that a double B might have to pay might be too prohibitive for some of those issuers to think about it. Yeah, and in the US, the the loan index has tightened about 50 basis points since mid-March. So that kind of brings it back into line with what the trend was before Ukraine is in the sort of the gradual rise in yields that we were already seeing before the war just threw everything into disarray and, and created a big spike in yields. But clearing levels for new deals in terms of OID and spread uh, are definitely still very attractive for investors. So OIDs on the whole are still relatively generous and pricing has been flexing wider a lot more than it's been flexing tighter. But there's definitely decent demand and it seems like that resurgence of issuance is going to continue. We've seen inflows into retail funds and CLO creation has shown some signs of recovery. So there's, there's, there's definitely kind of increasing demand. And how about bonds? It's been a tough year for high yield. Is it still a less favoured market for primary issuance than loans? So on the bond side, pricing on bonds has often been a lot more heavily discounted than it has in loans. And that's partly just because the rate environment is for sure still favoring loans at the moment. But we have actually seen an uptick in bond issuance lately, especially in the energy space. So there was a rash of deals last week from energy companies, which are benefiting a lot at the moment from rising oil and gas prices. Um, we actually published an article last Friday about that trend, touching on three deals. It was Hess, Hillcorp and Holly, the three H's. 
Um, and people are expecting a few more deals out of that sector, um, possibly even from issuers whose names don't begin with the letter H. Um, so yeah, that's been an interesting space where the bond market as a whole has benefited from some kind of extra pricing data in, in this sort of price discovery mode, uh, thanks to what's going on with energy prices right now. Are there any particular deals that are in the pipeline that you're focusing on that you feel are particularly significant? I know you've mentioned a few already, but it'd be great to deep dive into some of those in the forward deal pipeline. Um, I suppose just because of the fact that it's been talked about for so long is Morrison's, and we've now just seen the ratings appear this week. So I did have a bet with one of my colleagues it would appear before Easter. I'm probably going to lose that, but I suspect it will appear next week. Um, just because the fact it has got a very decent comp which is Asda and the fact that you know the deal was done last year when rates and spreads were you know, very very different so it's the question is where, where how can that deal actually be done I suppose the other dynamics are interesting is that it's been given a, a notch worse rating than Asda I think people are hoping it would price on top of Asda it might have to price a little bit wider and also it had that huge uh, 2.4 billion sterling SSM component I think everyone expects that that will probably get folded more into euros and into loans rather than bonds and I think sort of thinking about how that deal might price will be interesting uh, we have written about this in the past in terms of where the cap rates are and it looks like the, these deals will actually come you know, way above the cap rates I mean a good ex for a good example here you're seeing the SSNs for ASDA are now at sort of six percent with a four handle at the time that they were looking at this deal and the Suns are sort of trading at seven and a quarter uh, and again, I think they had a five handle at that time. So I think that's going to be interesting. I think this, where, where the loans would price, I suppose it also depends whether there's going to be some notching here between the senior secureds and the, and the senior. But I suspect the loans will probably they'll try and get them below 400, but I don't think they'll be able to go that far, sort of through 400. And another name that I would be interested in, but also because it's a cross-border deal, but it's a big deal and it's an interesting sector, is the... Um, the Fericia deal to pay for Heller, I think that's going to be a really interesting deal because I think it will show up the dynamic between where the dollar pricing and the euro pricing is and that might be interesting to see how that sort of split evolves. And also, if there's a bond component to that, that's sort of the, the, the sort of safe double B area that you know might give a bit more of a benchmark on pricing as well. Yeah, and Nielsen is another upcoming deal that's going to have euros alongside dollars. So that'll be interesting from that perspective. And I think it's also kind of interesting that Nielsen at this point might actually come sooner than Citrix, which is the other kind of big LBO deal that we've been waiting for for, for months now in the US. So Nielsen is a pretty chunky deal, similar to Citrix. Um, and it's also similar in another way. Maybe it's, it's maybe too early to call this a trend, but these are two big LBOs where they're happening to companies that are in a very important kind of transitional phase in terms of their business. So Citrix is under pressure to make up for some of the ground that they lost during the pandemic when they sort of failed to capitalize on the work from home trend, despite having a product that seemed really sort of tailor made for that situation. And at the same time, they're also switching from a license model to subscriptions, which could create some kind of choppiness in earnings. And then for Nielsen, it's overhauling its rating system to deal with the rise of, of streaming and connected TV. And this is a transition that would be a big deal anyway. But on top of all of that, Nielsen actually lost its accreditation from the Media Rating Council in 2021. And part of the reason for that is that it was undercounting viewer numbers during the pandemic. So this all traces back to what I was saying before, the sort of the rise of 
connected TV with streaming platforms and other sort of non-linear TV and content delivery systems. So Nielsen is basically working to implement this new system called Nielsen One. And this is a kind of unified platform to provide advertising clients with more accurate metrics across all viewing platforms so that they can judge the, the success of, of advertising campaigns. And that's actually a really complex problem. I mean, I won't go into the, the gory details right now, but partly because it's so complex, the consensus seems to be that Nielsen is the natural company to take the lead on this sort of transition, partly because they're, they're already so embedded in the media metrics and kind of advertising industry with the, the big the big TV channels and big advertisers and that kind of thing. But it definitely means that in terms of the LBO, there is some definite execution risk there. So I think how that feeds through into the pricing of the debt in a market that is still somewhat kind of finding its feet after this period of, of increased volatility, I think that'll be really interesting. Are there any particular sectors that are coming into focus? For example, as inflation continues to worsen? So obviously, the, the one that I mentioned already is energy. Um, that's, that's one place where issuers could capitalize on this sudden spike in pricing and take advantage of it. And when I say pricing, I mean you know energy prices rather than, than bond pricing. Um, so obviously, we're transitioning more and more to, to green energy and oil and gas is a, a finite resource. So that industry is only going one way. Um, so if there's a sudden window where funding costs radically improve, it kind of makes sense for issuers to, to jump through it. So we, we could definitely see some more some more issuance in that space. And then the food sector could also be interesting. We're, we're definitely hearing that in food and beverage, inflation and also supply chain disruption is really starting to bite and kind of causing some shifts in the way that investors view that space as well as the the outlook for earnings. So a lot of these food and beverage companies actually did really well through the pandemic. But there's no guarantee that that kind of growth is going to continue in this next phase. And one good example of this is Treehouse Foods, which we wrote about last week. So this is a US company and it's currently divesting its meal preparation business. And Treehouse was actually initially looking into a full sale of the company. But earlier this year, its management team decided to pivot away from a full sale of the company and towards divestitures instead. So they're divesting this meal preparation business, which makes shelf-stable food and that kind of thing, as well as potentially some other assets. And the company actually has bonds trading in the 80s right now, so they're going to use proceeds of these divestitures to pay down debt. But one of the reasons they pivoted away from the full sale of the company, and they were actually quite explicit about this, is that they said the financing environment had deteriorated since they first started looking at the full sale. So that's one thing that was expected to dampen interest from bidders, and another thing that could dampen bitter interest in the meal preparation business specifically is the fact that that division's product offering is very broad and very diverse. They have so many brands and so many products. So that makes it quite a complex asset. Um, so for one thing, that could possibly kind of drag down the valuation. Um, and it could also mean that whoever ends up buying it might be more inclined to pitch the financing more towards the sort of direct lending and private credit space rather than doing a, a big syndicated deal just because of that kind of complexity you need that you, you want that extra kind of certainty of, of execution that is offered by direct lending so that's that's an interesting situation that's going on there but we are hearing that within the food space there's actually a decent amount of demand for sort of 
trendier snack and beverage assets in particular. And interestingly, those are the businesses that Treehouse Foods are saying that they're going to hang on to rather than divesting. But one thing to consider in terms of the valuation and earnings trajectory for those kind of assets is that similar to fashion brands, there's potentially some fad risk there, you know, a kind of trendy beverage or something is in, in vogue for a couple of years and then it sort of falls out of favor with consumers. So that's definitely a risk. So, so yeah, kind of a, a mixed bag of things going on in, in food and beverage, but it's definitely a space where the outlook has become a lot more complicated given what's going on with the, the emergence from the pandemic and supply chain disruption and inflation. Yeah, I think we, we've talked about food quite a bit over in Europe and sort of a couple of names we've done a lot of work on the things like Bapara and Upfield. And I think that maybe that's come more into, fe- into, into focus more in Europe earlier. Um, I suppose for us, it's probably around energy costs and what's happened with Russia and Ukraine and sort of big uses of natural gas and big uses of energy and sort of what industries that might affect. And the, the most affected industries so far have been probably pulp and paper, um, very high profile sort of shutdowns of plants in Italy for Progest and also in Norway for Norska Skog. Uh, we've seen quite a lot of uh, issues regarding the sort of packaging sector and the costs of PVC and also that's a high energy cost. And some co- producers such as Klockner have benefited from sailwinds from sort of the medical uh, division after COVID. So I think there is concerns regarding those type of businesses. Um, and then also probably looking at the sort of lower margin businesses, which are going to probably face issues from sort of labour costs, wage inflation and potentially also um, strikes as wage, as workers try and recoup that sort of loss in real wages as well. So that's names such as Italia and Elio also are sort of interesting as well. And I suppose the other thing that we're quite keen to look at here is um, that we're seeing on the sort of quarter four earnings, everyone seems to be very bullish about their ability to pass through the costs to the end customer and the fact that they say that they are well hedged. I would probably countenance that a little bit to say that's quite backward looking and that that was well before Russia Ukraine kicked in and you've actually seen some much much sharper inflation and also more issues regarding supply so I think that maybe we need to be a little bit more careful about whether that sort of ability to pass through the ability to secure the supply that they want the ability to sort of keep those hedges in place and not having to re-hedge at much higher prices you know doesn't impact uh, earnings going forward in sort of Q1 and Q2. Yeah, Novalex was actually another really interesting primary deal recently where that was a really big theme. A lot of people that we spoke to weren't kind of totally pessimistic on the name, but they did seem to think that the pass-through risk might actually create some earnings volatility down the line and that maybe that might mean some better opportunities to buy into the debt in a quarter or two if, if that pass-through volatility feeds into kind of worse earnings or... or um, worse than expected earnings. I think that's a lot of that's a lot of what these companies have been doing is they've actually been trying to they had indexed uh, pass throughs in a lot of contracts, but quite often they might only be contracts that were done on an annual basis or they were done on a quarterly basis. So you had these sort of lags coming through, and I now think these companies are trying very very hard to make those monthly and to sort of you know to renegotiate the ones which are annual. Then that's quite an interesting dynamic that you'll see. Yeah, yeah, it's it's just all about the time lag, isn't it? figuring out how long the lag will be. So you mentioned earnings season a little bit there, Chris. Um, It'd be great to know if you've seen any kind of major red flags. Can we expect a huge restructuring tidal wave? At the moment, nothing's really come through for us on Q4 in terms of anything that's really underperformed massively. I think what we have seen, though, is that 
all the questions have been about forward visibility and about uh, you know about costs and hedging and what's actually happening to the uh, the sort of end customer base and a lot of management teams are being very very coy on that they're not really giving forward guidance at all so i think but in terms of real ways of restructuring, I suppose the ones that really are going to be happening between now and year end are more either with direct issues because of Russia or they've already had those problems in place in sort of 2022 and it's just sort of building. So I don't expect to see a huge pickup in restructuring, but there are a lot more deals out there which are now trading at sort of stressed or distressed levels, though I would caveat that on the stressed and distressed, you have to be a little bit careful about price. I would look more on spread. So for a good example, we've got, I think, 63 deals now, which um, trade at above 800 basis points, which is stress. So that's a fair number compared to about 600 names in European high yield. But if you look at the number of deals, which are actually tr- number of companies we have with bonds, which are trading below 90, it's 131. So it's less than, less than half of those names are trading above 800. So, you know, be a little bit careful about that, that effect. Yeah, I think... It's also a bit early to say anything on that front in the US, um, at least based on fourth quarter numbers. But this current earnings season could definitely be the point at which we get some more insight into that and can talk about it with a bit more clarity. I mean, there was definitely an interruption in access to financing earlier this year, albeit quite brief, and financing costs are rising. And I think that rise in financing costs could potentially stress some business models, but the extent to which it matters is kind of be, going to be defined by what first quarter earnings look like. So I guess we should revisit that question in a, in a few weeks or so when we've got some more data. Yeah, one thing that I saw was interesting was, you know, what, what, a lot of companies had elevated leverage up during 2020. They probably raised more debt to, to give themselves more liquidity. But I think Bank of America said that now 57% of European high yield names are now actually at lower leverage than they were in 2019. So that's still quite a few that are above that. That's still 43%. And are you really going to see that much deleveraging now because of that inflation that's kicking in? So maybe that deleveraging path you were hoping for in 20, being 2022 was going to be that year when you started to see you know, leverage significantly get below 22 levels. Maybe that's not going to happen anymore. And I think also people think that inflation is going to be there for longer. It's not transitory. And a lot of people are now building into their sort of models that that's probably not going to start to come down until well into 2023. Yeah, but then again, on, on the other side, there's been so much refinancing activity over the past couple of years. So companies have pushed out maturities so much that they definitely have a lot more kind of cushion to sort of navigate their way through this kind of transitional or potentially quite volatile period for earnings. Yeah, no, that's that's a good point. And that's probably something that will support the high yield market in Europe is that you are not going to get, have those refi opportunities that you had before because you have very few deals now because of the rate moves that are trading you know, close to call. So you're not going to have that 25 to 30 billion that you might have expected at the back end of last year for the first you know, half of 22. That's not going to be there anymore. And I'm afraid that's all we have time for today on Cloud9 Fin. Many thanks to Chris and to Will and of course to you too, listener. Tune in for the UK edition next week with me uh, and the US edition the week after. And in the meantime, don't forget to subscribe on Spotify, Apple Music, Amazon Music and Google Podcasts.